So here's a question for you. How much thought have you given to your eyes today? How much thought have you given to your vision before the children's message, you know? Um, chances are not a lot. But throughout human history, the ability to see has been a matter of life and death. Because the world is full of dangers and risk, and we need sight to discern them. In his one-act play, The um, Magician, Derek Delgaudio, told the story of the time between dog and wolf. Does anybody know that expression? The time between dog and wolf. Um, it comes from the Middle Ages. It's more of a cautionary tale uh, than a story, but it's what parents would use to scare their children uh, to make sure that they got home before it got dark out. The time between dog and wolf is the time when the sun goes down. And the sun is at the horizon, and it's very difficult to discern the difference between a dog and a wolf, between a friend and a foe. And by the time you see them, by the time they're close enough to tell the difference, it's too late. Whether we realize it or not, the ability to see is a survival tactic. Vision is a matter of life and death, so you better know, can I trust my eyes? And what's true physically is especially true spiritually. To thrive spiritually is a new kind of seeing. We often say that seeing is believing, but in the world of the Bible, it's the other way around. It's upside down. Believing is actually seeing. And if you're not looking for it, you can actually miss this part of the story. This is the familiar story of David's anointing. But if you're not looking for it, um, you can see the history in it, that at the end of the story, a new king is anointed, but you can miss what God is trying to show us through the story. And the key to unlocking it is in verse 7, which we've already heard. It says, For the Lord Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. That's the key to understanding this story. It's all about perspective. And I have to admit, I never saw that in the text before this week. But it is a story about perspective. So what happens when we look at this story through the lens of vision and sight? Here's what we will see. We will see a story of human perspective and divine perspective. A story about what humans could see and what God saw. And the story seesaws, get it? The story seesaws between the human and the divine perspective, what humans could see and what God saw. And so that's what we're going to look at. And like most stories in the Bible, it begins with the human perspective. And this is what we see. The prophet Samuel couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't see what God was doing. This story begins in the twilight of Samuel's life. He's old and gray. A lot of time has passed since that young boy in the temple prophesied to the blind old priest. Since that day, Samuel had had a long career in Israel as a prophet, speaking God's will to the people. And chief among his life's work in building the nation of Israel was anointing the first ever king of Israel, a tall, handsome man named Saul. 
And if we back up a couple of verses to chapter 15, we actually see that Samuel is grieving. He is in tears. And it's because he looked out at his life's work. He looked at the community and the circumstances around him. And what did he see? Well, he saw that his sons had turned away from following the Lord. They were corrupt, just like Eli's sons at the beginning of the book of Samuel. His eyes saw that the nation that he had built is devoid of moral leadership. But more than that, he saw that the king he anointed, King Saul, had such a fragile ego that the entire nation was living in fear. One word against Saul and your head would be gone. And even God regretted making him king. So Samuel didn't like what his eyes were telling him, and he wept. Those eyes wept. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I know some of you know what it's like for a child to walk away from the faith. The rest of us parents live in fear of that. I know some of you know what it's like to look around and feel like the community of faith around you has fallen away. Some of you know what it's like to look at the reputation of the church in America at an all-time low, mostly due to scandal after scandal after scandal in the church a lack of moral leadership. I wonder if any of you think like Samuel, has my life's work been in vain? That's where Samuel was, and he was weeping. Sometimes we weep like Samuel wept. But Samuel's perspective was limited, and so was ours. Samuel's eyes saw failure, but what did God see? Well, the passage tells us God saw a new king. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself a king among the sons of Jesse. Now, every commentary on this text will tell you that that word provide is actually the word to see. I have seen for myself among the sons of Jesse, a king. Samuel saw failure. God saw a new king. This happens throughout scripture where human eyes can only see failure and God sees opportunity. Throughout the story of God's people, it almost becomes a, a redundant theme that when things are that that when we can see failure and death, God sees life and opportunity. Things are rarely what they seem, and uh, when it looks like God is absent, those are often the times that God is on the move, doing something new. Something new is coming. But that might be good news to us when we look at our circumstances, when we feel like God is absent, to know that, that God is actually on the move. He is doing new things. That might be good news to us, but in this particular time and place, it was not exactly good news to Samuel. Uh, did you catch that? When God tells him, I'm anointing a new king, he does not rejoice. He does not stop weeping. Why? Here's the problem. His name is Saul. See, Samuel was locked in 
Saul knew his every move. And if Samuel deviates from his prophetic circuit that he's allowed to move in, Saul will know and Saul will kill him. That's what he's afraid of. And beyond that, the whole nation is living in fear. And if you remember from Samuel's story a few weeks ago, people don't like prophets. So when the prophet shows up at your door, it might be bad news. And so the people are expecting, um, what is Samuel going to say to me? So Samuel actually has two problems. He doesn't want Saul to know that he's on the move. And he knows that if he shows up somewhere, they might not let him in. And so they hatch a plan. And God says, take a young calf with you and tell them when you get to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, tell them we are going to worship. I come in peace and to worship in the Old Testament means to feast because they would butcher that animal and they would light the grill and everybody's going to eat this peace meal with God. And so when you see Samuel, you might be troubled, but when you see the calf, and you know that there's going to be a chance to confess your sins, to worship Yahweh, to eat in the presence of God, you realize a party is here. Samuel is inviting us to a party. So that's what they do. Samuel shows up and he says, I've come in peace. Consecrate yourselves, confess your sins, get ready to come to approach God and worship, slaughter the animal, light the fire. But before they sit down to eat, before anybody takes a bite, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, I need to see your sons. Now, we are familiar with the story. As the readers, we're in on the secret. We know why Samuel's there. They don't. No one knows. So Jesse might be thinking, which one of my sons did something wrong that Samuel's got to hold him to account for? He doesn't know. So it's not clear if it's good news or bad news, but you can't refuse a prophet. So here they come. And it's like a beauty contest in our imagination, right? The first son stands before Samuel. There's this, each son is paraded before him for the purpose of Samuel to look at them. Well, what did he see? First thing we're told in the story is that right off the bat, Samuel sees a king, right? Look at verse 6. When they came, he looked, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. See, Samuel looked on Eliab, and what did he see? He saw height, stature. He saw king material. Kings protect their people. That's their job. And in the days of hand-to-hand combat, combat, height was a valuable asset for a king to have. Because if he's tall, he can fight. And if he can fight, he can protect you. Just remember, if you flip over a page, um, there's a giant named Goliath swinging his sword at the armies of Israel. Sure be nice to have a guy like Eliab there to fight Goliath. See, Samuel saw Eliab and he saw a man who could make Israel proud. He saw a warrior, a leader who could protect the people. It was Saul all over again, a tall, handsome man ready to fight. But Samuel's eyes could not see what God saw. 
We can't really blame Samuel, can we? Again, we know the story. We're in on the secret as the readers. Um, but by all measures, Eliab could have made a fine king, right? He was likely the pride and joy of Bethlehem, um, but he was not the Lord's anointed. He was not chosen by God. We might have our own Eliabs, don't we? We tend to put our trust in the tried and true things that keep us secure. Our intellect, our charm, a nest egg tucked away. What is your Eliab? What is the thing that you look to to give you security, to protect you? I don't think we're that far away from Samuel. He saw a king, but he did not see what God saw. And this is what we have to realize. Our vision as human beings, our vision is limited. Look at the end of verse 7. This is the key verse, remember? For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord can see what we can't see. Our eyes, our understanding are, are finite. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. So here's the question in Samuel's head at the moment. And here's the question for you and for me. Will you trust that God's vision is better than yours? Will you trust that God can see what you can't see? Will you trust that he knows best? Some of you are facing moral decisions. Some of you are facing life decisions. And you know there is a way that you can see that looks right. But the Lord is telling you a different way that you can't see. Will you trust him? See, faith at its essence is trusting in what we cannot see. Trusting a God that Kyle reminded us we cannot see. The, the preacher Tony Evans put it this way. He said, the only way you will be able to see life with a clear vision is when you view all of life from a kingdom perspective. See, we need God's perspective, his kingdom perspective. And to do that, to get that perspective, we have to rely on what God reveals to us. Samuel saw a king, but it wasn't God's anointed. God had to show Samuel his king. And that's what happens next. God shows Samuel his king. After the third son of Jesse, we don't even get names anymore. It's just the other four also get trotted up before Samuel. And Samuel looks at him. And each of them, he waits to hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord's anointed is not among them. So in this climactic moment, um, Samuel thinks, wait a minute, was Yahweh mistaken? Um, was I mistaken? Maybe it was Jesse with a Y, not Jesse with a J. Um, am I at the right place? Jesse, do you have any more sons? Now at this point... It's clear what's happening to everyone. Samuel has made it clear through this parade of sons that he is there to choose someone for Yahweh. And Jesse says in response, well, there's the youngest, but he's with the sheep. The youngest, the littlest, the least, not even dignified with a name. Just the youngest. 
which is the Hebrew equivalent of saying El Chiquito, the runt. And he's out with the sheep because the sheep are not going to look after themselves. Somebody's got to tend to the sheep. And the youngest, the runt, is the low man on the totem pole. Samuel says, go get him. And none of us are going to eat until he gets here. Nobody move. Wait until the youngest gets here. Now, this is brilliant storytelling. Um, we feel the suspense. What's going to happen? Even though we know, we know the end of the story. We feel the suspense. But normally we turn this into a Disney movie. See, we think that um, it's like the brothers are all there trying to try out to be the new quarterback. And there's some like high power recruiter there to look at the talent. And they go through every son, you know, doing his thing, throwing the ball and, and trying out. And, and we think, well, David's the underdog. No one really, you know, thought that he had the skills or the talent um, to, to, uh, to be quarterback. But you have to remember, um, no one knew that Samuel was there to anoint a new king. That was intentionally hidden from them, remember? He was just there to worship. He was just there to have a party. He was just there for a feast. So it's not like they looked at David and they said, no, we don't see any king material in him. Don't even bother trying out for the team. It's actually worse than that, isn't it? See, they were gathered to feast, which means that they didn't even invite David to the party. He didn't even get to come and eat. He wasn't underestimated. He was forgotten, uninvited. They didn't even look at David at all. That's how far out of the picture he is. You know what it feels like, don't you? To be unseen, to be left out. Do you think David could uh, see the fire from where he was in the field with the sheep? Do you think he could hear the music? You know, I hate being the low man on the totem pole. That's all David knew. I wonder if he was sitting in the pasture thinking, why do I have to be the one that's out here with the sheep while everyone else gets to entertain the holy prophet and eat veal? Why did I have to be born last? Would there be any leftovers for me? David knows the pain of seeing an Instagram post of a party that he didn't get invited to. No one saw David. But here in the silence and the suspense of the moment, they all waited for him to show up. And everyone holds their breath. And it's dark now. The fire is casting shadows off of Samuel's furrowed brow as everyone waits, wondering what will happen next when the youngest shows up. And then out of the shadows, David steps. No doubt out of breath from running the way you run when a, when a prophet summons you. David, the man whose story is the longest biography in antiquity. David, the name that would be mentioned hundreds more times in the Old Testament and dozens of times in the New Testament. David, whose name is found inscribed to this day in the Judean hills, hills on ancient rocks bearing his name. 
from his kingdom. This David simply steps out of the shadows and into God's story. This has been his introduction. And Samuel lays eyes on him. And when he does, Yahweh whispers in his ear, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel put some oil on David's head and anointed him. And the spirit rushed upon David. David, finally named. And the story ends. And everyone goes back to life as normal. Even David goes back to the sheep. But God showed Samuel and everyone else that there that day, his anointed king. See, it's in this anticlimactic, passive way that David is introduced to us. King David, the story that is so captivating, so human in its emotions and its ups and downs, his loves and lusts, his impulses and failures, his deep relationships and his painful betrayals. More ink is spilled in the Bible on David's life and thoughts and emotions than anyone else. David gets more screen time than Jesus in the Bible. And yet his origin story is not the story of a king who arrived by political maneuvering or military prowess, but in the sovereign choice of Yahweh, who chose an unseen, forgotten runt, the littlest among his brothers, the youngest, to be his king. So we have to ask, what is God trying to show us in this story? Well, if this is all about sight, then we know that we need to trust God's vision to see what we cannot see, as we've already mentioned. Faith, after all, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, according to the author of Hebrews. But there's something else here if we have eyes to see it. If God looks at the heart, then we must look at God's heart. He is the God who saw a lowly shepherd, the youngest of eight boys in a pasture with his sheep, and he chose him. Not because he knew that Saul was a wolf and David was a dog. No, he knew David and what David would do and become. He knew that David was like us, both a dog and a wolf. He knew the lives that David um, would destroy, the lives that would be lost at his hand. He knew the tragic failures and the crimes that David would commit. God saw those too. But he saw a man after his own heart. He saw a man of his own choosing. One that God would love. By the way, did you know David's name means beloved? And he was beloved by everyone in the story except for Saul, except for his enemies. But he was beloved by his friends beloved by daughters of kings. Most of all, though, he was beloved by God. And God saw a man that he would love, and he would love him in return. And God looked all the way down the line, and he saw the line of David. And he saw Jesus, the Messiah, which means the anointed one, a king even better than David, who never sinned and gave his own life for his people, whom he calls beloved. Do you see it? 
Do you see the heart of the Lord? Because he sees you. He looks all the way down the line of David. He looks all the way down to Jesus when he would come and take on flesh and give his life as a ransom for his people. And he saw you. He saw you who in Christ through faith and baptism in him are anointed as a Christian, which means a little Christ, a little anointed one. He saw you and he chose you. He chose you to love you and to be loved by you in return. You were not forgotten. You were chosen. You were bought with a price. You were anointed. God loves you like he loves David with a love that will never let you go. Will you love him in return? Lord, give us hearts to love you. Amen.